Tonight on PBS News Weekend, eating disorders, once thought to be more prevalent among women and girls, they're affecting more and more adolescent boys. Then what the Biden administration is doing to tackle those hidden fees that hit low-income families the hardest. And the often misunderstood legacy of the Black Panther Party and its influence on today's struggle for civil rights. I think the greatest legacy was a youth movement, a young organization composed mainly of people in their late teens and early 20s, a new type of organization and youth movement that was focused on serving the community. Good evening, I'm John Yang. As Israel's bombardment of Gaza goes on unabated, the World Health Organization says the main hospital in southern Gaza is no longer functional after an Israeli raid last week. In a post on X, the head of the WHO said 200 patients remain in Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says only 25 medical staff remain. Israel says last week's raid was to look for the remains of hostages and that they arrested more than 100 who they say are assisted militants. Today's airstrikes killed at least 18 people, 11 of them in Rafah and Han Yunus, including children. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu brushed aside international concerns about a planned ground assault on Rafah, saying that those in harm's way would be evacuated. But many of the one million or so Gazans who've taken refuge in Rafah say there's no place left to go. We will not go out of Rafah. We will die in our country here. Where should we go? We have nowhere. Our homes in Han Yunus are gone. Everything we own, from money to possessions, are gone. Any sustenance we got is gone. Tomorrow, the International Court of Justice opens hearings on the legality of Israel's 57-year occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, both captured in the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Two police officers and a paramedic are dead after an early morning shooting in Burnsville, Minnesota. It's a well-to-do suburb of Minneapolis. The Minnesota Police Association says the suspect is also dead. The association said seven children were inside the home and that the suspect negotiated with police for four hours before SWAT officers entered. City officials identified the victims as officers Paul Elmstrad and Matthew Rouge and paramedic Adam Finseth. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz said they were responding to a call about a family in danger and that other officers were also injured. A senior Pakistani official has admitted that he helped rig election results in his city. That deepens the political turmoil surrounding the tumultuous and indecisive national elections earlier this month. This weekend, thousands of supporters of jailed former Prime Minister Imran Khan took to the streets. The official's admission seems to give weight to accusations that the military tampered with the vote count. The official resigned, and the election commission said it would investigate. And at the NBA All-Star Weekend in Indianapolis, Golden State Warriors star Steph Curry narrowly beat New York Liberty's Sabrina Ionescu in the first-ever NBA-WNBA three-point contest. Ionescu shot from the men's three-point line, which is about 12 to 18 inches beyond the WNBA line, Curry had to rally a bit at the end to edge UNESCO by, what else, three points. The real winners, though, are the charities the players chose to get $25,000 each. Still to come on PBS News Weekend, junk fees. Those charges millions of Americans are hit with every year. And the often hidden history of the Black Panther Party.
This is PBS News Weekend from WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. For years, eating disorders were thought to be a condition predominantly affecting women and girls. But it's estimated that one in three people with an eating disorder is male and that 10 million American males will struggle with it at some point in their lives. Dr. Jason Nagata is a pediatrician specializing in eating disorders at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also editor of the book Eating Disorders in Boys and Men. Dr. Nagata, do eating disorders look different in boys uh, than, than in girls? Yes, absolutely. The masculine body ideal is big and muscular, and this can lead to muscle-building behaviors like excessive exercise, restriction of carbs and fats while over-consuming protein, um, and use of muscle-building supplements and drugs like anabolic steroids. When taken to the extreme, this can lead to muscle dysmorphia, also known as reverse anorexia or bigorexia, um, and this is when somebody pathologically becomes obsessed with the idea that their body is too puny or scrawny um, and they need to become more muscular. What does overexercise, uh, too much protein, not enough carbohydrates, what does that do to the body? In simple terms, we need to maintain you know, an energy balance. So whatever energy we're exerting through physical activity or exercise, we need to take in enough for nutrition. I think it's pretty well recognized that when people restrict their eating, um, like if they're skipping meals or um, really eating a small amount of calories, that can lead to energy deficits. But I think it's relatively under-recognized that if people are exercising a lot, um, but not increasing their nutrition, that can also lead to energy deficits. And this is what we see in many of the boy athletes who develop eating disorders that we take care of. We're hearing much more about eating disorders in boys. Uh, is it because there are more males uh, with eating disorders, or is it just being recognized more and diagnosed more? I think it's a little bit of both. Boys have more pressures for muscularity now more than ever. Hollywood superheroes have become more muscular than in past decades. Boys' action figures are more muscular. Um, and with the advent of social media, boys' bodies are on display more than ever. Um, and there are all these studies that have shown that uh, more engagement with social media is linked with disordered eating, um, muscle dissatisfaction, and even steroid use, particularly among teenage boys. I think the last factor is that the COVID-19 pandemic um, really led to an explosion of eating disorders among teenagers across the board, including in boys, um, just to, due to a perfect storm of social anxiety, isolation, disruption of um, activities in school, and then a rise in screen time. Are the treatments for males the same as the treatment for females, or do you have to come up with new techniques, new approaches? Well, unfortunately, most of the research has been based on females, not males. Um, and so we don't have really great guidance. Um, and in fact, um, previously, loss of periods was a criteria for anorexia nervosa. Um, and, uh, and so it's actually been hard to diagnose boys because some of the diagnostic criteria actually don't reflect some of the experiences that they're facing. One of the first patients that I took care of as a student was a 16-year-old male wrestler who had actually been struggling for years with an eating disorder before anyone recognized it as an eating disorder. By the time that we saw him, he was obsessed with his weight. He was checking his weight 10 times a day. He was working out for seven hours a day, um, and he would only eat protein supplements, nothing else. Um, and so unfortunately, he had gotten to a severely malnourished state and actually had to be hospitalized. Um, and I remember at the time, trying to, as a student, trying to read up about guidelines and how to best help him um, but 
nothing existed because it was all based on female samples. What do you tell parents, guardians, or anyone who's got a young male they care about in their lives? What are the signs they should look for? You know, muscle building goals are pretty common in teenage boys. A third of teenage boys report that they're trying to bulk up or gain weight. I mean, not all of them will develop an eating disorder. However, warning signs for an eating disorder um, occur when a boy develops a preoccupation or obsession with food, exercise, appearance, or weight in a way that impairs their school or daily functioning um, and also starts to really worsen their quality of life. So, for instance, some of the boys with eating disorders that I care for um, spend five-plus hours in the gym, and if they aren't in the gym all day, uh, they'll feel guilty about it. Uh, they won't be able to eat out with family or friends because they perceive restaurant food or home-cooked food to be insufficient in protein um, or too fatty. And so when it really gets to a point where it's um, impairing your social functioning or work uh, or school functioning, that's, I think, when uh, it uh, borders into a disorder. And if parents spot these signs, what should they do to help? I think a good first step is to talk with your primary care pediatrician who can help to get um, referrals to an eating disorder specialist, a mental health provider, and a nutrition provider to help support your child. Dr. Jason Nagata of the University of California, San Francisco, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The Biden administration has proposed new regulations that take aim at junk fees, those hidden or misleading charges that boost the cost of things like concert tickets, hotel rooms, even bank accounts, by tens of billion dollars a year. Ali Rogan has the details. Eight billion dollars. That's how much money the nation's biggest banks take in roughly every year in overdraft fees. The average dollar amount for overdrawing a bank account has come down in recent years, but in 2023, the average fee was still more than $26. And those with the least ability to pay are the hardest hit. In 2023, 34% of households making less than $65,000 a year were charged with an overdraft or insufficient funds fee. Cora Lewis is a business reporter for the Associated Press. Cora, thank you for joining us. How is the Biden administration looking to tackle these fees? The Biden administration is really using the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to take aim at these fees, uh, as well as the Federal Trade Commission. But when it comes to overdraft fees, they're trying to use new rules and regulations to limit the amount that banks can charge consumers when they overdraft. What they're proposing is a new rule that would require banks to show what their costs are to consumers when they enact these fees. Banks really aren't interested in doing that, so the CFPB is giving them an alternative, which is to lower the fees to as little as $3, but possibly 6 7 or $14 as benchmark fees, which are still much, much lower than the fees as they currently stand. And why is the Biden administration taking on junk fees writ large right now? Why is this the moment that they've decided to do all this? I think right now, a lot of the pandemic era stimulus is ending. Inflation has been high for a while. People are relying on credit cards. The average consumer is really feeling the pinch and has 
spent down their savings and junk fees really hit households who can least afford them. Overdraft fees typically hit consumers who have less than $500 in a checking account. And oftentimes, the same households that experience overdraft fees will experience them multiple times per year. They might be living paycheck to paycheck or relying on Social Security or other benefits. So $35 when you're already really working hard to budget is a, a significant amount. Absolutely. Now, you pointed out some really good reasons why this would be happening now, the pandemic among them. But of course, these fees have been around since the 1990s. Why have they been allowed to continue and to get so much bigger over so much time? Yeah, it's uh, really been an insidious growth. And they have come down in recent years. Bank of America in particular has reduced their fees, I think partly because the banks were taking a reputational hit and they were finding it harder and harder to justify these increasingly punitive fees. But regulation seems to be needed to bring them even more in line with what's reasonable. So now what are banks saying about this? Well, the banks in recent years have started making huge amounts of money off of these fees. And so, as you can imagine, there's a strong lobbying effort against the proposed regulations. And some smaller banks like credit unions and community banks in particular rely very heavily on these fees and are not interested in them being reined in by the White House. Yeah, and that seems to be one of the lines that you hear a lot of, saying this could really detrimentally affect community banks, credit unions, banks that support the military. So how is that landing on the other side of the issue among the people that want to get rid of these fees? I would say that consumer advocates would argue that if you are relying on these fees to run your bank and to support your business model, then you're not operating as a bank. You're really operating as a lender. And you're making these small loans with extremely exorbitant rates, and you should be regulated as a lender in that case and, and not as a bank. And of course, these uh, new rules are going into effect through the CFPB, through the administration, not going through Congress. How easily could they be undone by a subsequent administration? That's, I believe, also a hope of the banking industry is that Republican president or a Republican Congress could really undo these regulations and that if they stall long enough or if there's a different administration, they could be undone very easily. Cora Lewis, who's covering this issue for the Associated Press, thank you so much for breaking it down. Thanks for having me. In the 1960s civil rights movement, some concluded that nonviolence and the focus on integration had failed. Rather than integrating society, they wanted to fundamentally change it, and they didn't renounce violence in self-defense. Their cry was black power rather than we shall overcome. One of the most prominent of these groups was the Black Panther Party. It was also perhaps one of the most misunderstood and most vilified by the white establishment. For Black History Month, that's the topic of tonight's Hidden Histories. The Black Panther Party was revolutionary in both its goals and its tactics. It began in 1966 in response to both the assassination of Malcolm X, a leading advocate of black separatism, and the killing of an unarmed black 16-year-old named Matthew Johnson during a San Francisco police stop. Founders Bobby Seale and Huey Newton were college students at the time. We uh, of the Black Panther Party said as long as uh, 
the evil gentry and corrupt officials, as long as the oppressor uh, uh, makes the laws, the people are not bound to respect them. Uh, we are bound to transform society and uh, erect a system where uh, people will receive justice. Their 10-point program leaned heavily on Marxism. They saw black American struggles as part of a global liberation movement. In America, uh, black people are uh, treated very much as uh, the Vietnamese people or any other colonized people because we're used, we're brutalized, the police in our community occupy uh, our uh, area, our community as a foreign troop occupies territory. They provided community services called survival programs to promote self-determination. Free food, especially breakfasts for school children, free health care, and voter registration drives. They established schools in nine cities. We cannot stand these oppressive foreign troops in our communities. Women made up roughly half of the Panther membership of about 2,000, and they often held leadership roles. From 1974 until 1977, Elaine Brown was the head of the National Party. But it was the group's paramilitary displays that drew the white establishment's attention and alarm. Members patrolled neighborhoods in black jackets and black berets, openly and legally carrying weapons. For many white Americans, a photo of stern-looking Newton holding a rifle and a spear became their image of Black Panthers. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called the party the greatest threat to internal security and ordered surveillance to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the Black Panthers. Tensions with local police led to deadly clashes. In Chicago, a police raid killed rising party star Fred Hampton and party member Mark Clark. In 1982, the federal government paid $1.8 million to settle a lawsuit alleging that the FBI had a role in the Chicago raid. Plagued by internal disputes and power struggles, the party was essentially defunct by the late 1970s. It was formally disbanded in 1982. No justice, no peace! But many see parts of its legacy living on today in groups like Black Lives Matter. Party members were among the first to openly challenge police violence, often converging on the scene when officers stopped young black men on the streets. Donna Murch is an associate professor of history at Rutgers University and the author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Donna, from your perspective, what is the greatest legacy of the Black Panther Party? I think the greatest legacy was a youth movement, a young organization composed mainly of people in their late teens and early 20s, working class youth that had migrated from the South, who found themselves having unprecedented access to high school and college in California. And out of that, they helped form a study group and create a new type of organization and youth movement that was focused on serving the community. It started with confronting police violence because that's what the community saw as its single biggest problem. This is the era of the urban rebellions. You know, the party has formed a year after Watts. And they were willing to perform a form of activism in order to empower others. But very quickly after the police patrols, the Panthers shifted into something called survival pending revolution, which meant founding free breakfast programs, freedom schools, and the longest running institution of the Black Panther Party was a school in Oakland that ran for almost a decade. 
Can you put the Black Panther Party in sort of the context of the civil rights movement, of uh, where they stood, what role the organization filled, what their contributions were? I think one of the best ways to understand the Panther Party is to think about the Black Freedom Movement as having a large geography and time period. So the party is formed a year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. But you know, the dismantling of legal segregation in the South did not dismantle the problems of economics and access in the North and in the West. And one of the central issues about this was both police violence and people not having equal access to the social welfare state. So I would describe the Panthers as emerging in this moment post-civil rights after the accomplishments of the civil rights movement, of the successful passage of the Civil Rights Act and also the Voting Rights Act. But I would be remiss to not talk about the global link to the Panthers. They're formed in 1966, and this is after over a decade of decolonization of African countries winning their independence. And also, very importantly, they look to Asia. The Panthers are formed in Northern California, and they were adamant in their opposition to the Vietnam War and American imperialism. They identified with the Vietnamese, the Viet Minh, and with Ho Chi Minh. And they actually looked a lot to Vietnam, to China, and to a vision of anti-colonialism and a socialist state that would serve the people. So I think that's one of the most important contexts. The other thing I really want to stress, because the popular representations of the Panthers is wrong. So many people find out about the Panthers through Forrest Gump. They're represented as anti-white black militants. But the truth is, is that the party of all the 60s organizations, they had the strongest ties to creating a multiracial coalition, what was called in this period the Rainbow Coalition that Jesse Jackson later picks up on. So they united with white radical youth, who they called mother country radicals to oppose the Vietnam War. And this was incredibly threatening to the government of the time, you know, to J. Edgar Hoover in particular, because you basically saw a multiracial coalition uniting to stop anti-communism and violence in the global South. So I think that would also be the Panthers' legacy, a model of multiracial coalition building. You mentioned the, the free breakfast program that they ran in, in communities, which is not that far apart from the, the federal uh, free breakfast program that's being run now. But there was also a political vision in that, wasn't there? Yes, that's such an important point. They were arguing that the social welfare state as it existed was not serving the people and that they, as teenagers, could provide free breakfast. When they started the freedom schools, so many of the low-income children who went to Panther schools had not had breakfast and they couldn't learn. And so they were shaming the state. And... Although we don't have the direct documentary evidence, it is thought by many scholars that that shaming of the state prompted the issuing of free school lunch. Are there groups today that you see as direct descendants of the Black Panther Party that can draw a direct line from them to, to, to today? Yeah, I would say, you know, my first book was about the party's genesis in Oakland. It's called Living for the City. But my second book is about the last 10 years. And it's about the Black Lives Matter movement and why they chose Asada Shakur, who was a rank-and-file Panther member from New York City. So she's not from Oakland, where the Panthers were formed. She's from New York. And she wasn't part of the traditional male leadership. 
And especially over the last 10 years in the fight against state violence and murder and mass incarceration, Asada has become the best known of the Panthers. And it's from a poem that she wrote in Cuba in the 1980s that so many of these movement organizations opened their meetings. It is our duty to fight for freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Donna Murch of Rutgers University, thank you very much. Thank you. It's truly my pleasure. And that is PBS News Weekend for this Sunday. I'm John Yang. For all of my colleagues, thanks for joining us. Have a good week.